Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name is Chris Bouguet and I'm here with Rachel Nadel. What's going on, Rachel? Not much, Chris. Super excited to be here. I have um, something that's been on my mind lately that I want to just like chat about. This is my time to just like connect with you and like talk about work things and like you get me because like one, we're really good friends, but also like we know AAC and like the struggle is always real, <laughs> I feel like. So I'm hoping that this will help other clinicians at least in the sense of, oh, I experienced the same thing. Like this is so challenging. Sound good? I, I, I want to hear all about it. I'm really interested in what's, uh, what's on your mind. Okay. So what's been on my mind lately, because I've just had a few cases that I've been working on and this idea of the, the ethics behind the way that we're practicing for children um, and providing services to kids who are not making progress with speech. And when I, when I say speech, I mean actually working on speech, like put your lips together, say the M sound, um, you know, kids with severe apraxia of speech included in that. And I'm just really struggling because I'm, I'm facing a lot of students who I see not making progress on the speech front. And I know AAC would be so useful, so valuable, invaluable, um, and so necessary. And one, I'm seeing clinicians not referring out for AAC or prioritizing language. Um, so prioritizing speech over language. And don't get me wrong, like I, I'm a total communication girl. Like I like to support all modalities of communication and especially if parents are like, we wanna work on speech, that's great. But I'm not okay working on speech exclusively at the expense of not building language skills and general communication. And so it just keeps coming up in my practice. And I'm like, so frustrated that one, there's clinicians out there who are not recommending AAC for children who have, you know, very limited verbal speech. And two, like just the frustration that that then causes parents who are just like have so much hope that speech is going to improve and that their child will be a verbal speaker. And, you know, we don't know, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen with a you know, student that we're working with. But I think that ethically, it feels like our responsibility as speech language pathologists to start building the foundation for language and language development. And I just don't see that. And I'm so frustrated by it and I don't really know how to handle it. I just have all these feelings about it and I'm like frustrated that like I can't do what I need to do and that like clinicians aren't referring out for AAC when they should and then parents, eventually parents land on AAC. But it's like I'm meeting like seven or eight year olds and I'm like, what's been happening the last, you know, four years? And so I don't know, that's on my mind and I wanna talk about. Okay, well, let's start with this, Rachel. Let me ask. Let's say it's, um, let's say I'm the parent, okay, and I have a child that is mm, three years old and is not using verbal speech as their primary form of expression. So I come to Rachel Madel and I say, "Help me, Rachel Madel. What what do I do with my child here? Well, what would be the best way to help them with speech and language? Uh, what would you suggest in general?" 
I mean, obviously, we, there's a lot of individual stuff there. But um, what in general would you suggest be the approach for this three-year-old? And hold on, can I ask more clarifying questions to this hypothetical? Yeah. So the child has received speech therapy, focusing on verbal speech and not made progress, or I'm not sure what's happened. Well, let's say at three years old, you know, um, my hackle started to get up because I realized, hmm, other kids at three years old are talking a lot more than mine, you know, and my, my, um, uh, my nasty in-law keeps saying he should be talking more. How come he's not talking more? And he's constantly, constantly needling me. And so finally I went to maybe my, my pediatrician and they said, go to Rachel Madel. Rachel Madel is a speech therapist that sort of specializes in this. Um, she might be able to help you. So I, I not necessarily that, that my three-year-old has had intervention yet. Like if, if you, uh, let's say you're a brand new clinician, you're listening to this. You don't, we're not, we don't have to break their old habits. We could just teach them, this is what you do when a three-year-old comes to you, you know? Great. Okay. I see where we're going with this hypothetical. Yes. Okay. So I, the first thing I would assess is how well is the child able to imitate? Because I feel like that's a really good sign. Also, like with a three-year-old, it's hard because three-year-olds are like not really at the place where they can really do a lot of like repetitive practice with the speech side of things. Like we're doing more child-directed, play-based so I think that that's something I would assess. Um, and then if, if I started, you know, words weren't coming easily or word approximations or imitation skills, I would immediately use AAC or like start integrating maybe low tech, maybe high tech, depending on the situation and the family and start having those initial conversations with families about, um, you know, one, like typical language development. What is a child who's three years old typically developing saying, and then comparing that with what's happening with the specific student that I'm seeing. Um, and then, yeah, figuring out a way to give functional communication. And typically for me, that would be AAC. Mm -hmm. And when you say AAC, you mean some sort of robust AAC. Uh, when I say robust, I mean like a lot of words. Yes. Yes, a lot of words. Um, I, it depends on where the family is. Like some families are super open and we're, we're down for whatever will help. And, you know, we trust you and all of those things. And so then I would just like probably start trialing like high tech AAC um, for families who are really resistant and maybe need um, more time to get comfortable with AAC. I would probably start immediately introducing low tech visual supports um, and building the foundation for parents to understand why I'm using visuals, why they can be so helpful, and over time showing through the work that I do how successful they can be at overall communication, alleviating frustration, uh, building comprehension, all of those things. Might you also suggest to the parents that when you when you start to broach this uh, idea of AAC, that there might be this feeling that if you provide any form of AAC, that that is going to impede speech. But in fact, we don't know any case that's ever happened like that. And in fact, uh, it's it's all it's the opposite that that makes things easier, and the AAC helps bring along speech speech faster if it's going to happen. And uh, uh, maybe with the, the parallel there would be to sign language, you know? So many kids start with or are introduced to some, I'm going to do my, my more sign, see it, Rachel? My more sign, you know, they how many kids do more, 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 and then 
they don't use more anymore. They use it. They don't use it the sign language. They use the verbal. They didn't stick to that because verbal is always going to be easier. You know, it can be a bridge to more verbal speech. Uh, might that be another approach that we might uh, take to a to an open-minded parent that's like, okay, yeah, you know, I don't really know uh, anything about speech and language other than that it, it happened for me naturally. So, but you're the expert. That's why I'm coming to you and you say it's going to help. Then maybe, yeah, I'll put it in place. Totally. I always talk about those myths because I feel like even if parents don't talk about them openly with me, I know that that's a fear deep-seated that if we use this system that they'll not develop verbal speech. Sometimes it doesn't matter what you say. Parents are still afraid of that. And so it's a, it's a hard conversation to have. But yes, absolutely addressing those uh, potential underlying fears that parents have about um, AAC, you know, preventing or not encouraging verbal speech. One of the aspects that I like to bring out about voice output devices that I don't think necessarily is on the front of many people's minds is that when we're learning speech and when we're learning how to make our own speech, we are listening to other people and how they make sounds, right? And when we're listening to other people, all those other people have different variations. So when I'm listening to my dad, he might have a little deeper pitch and he might say things um, because he's from uh, Boston. He might have a little bit more of an ah, and he, you know, in, in, in his, and if it's listening to my mom, she might have a little bit of a higher pitch and all the little variations in there and how fast we say things and how slow we say things. But AAC is the same usually. Uh, you're going to hear it consistently the same way, which provides a stable pattern for a student to then learn from. Um, and and that can, I found for, for some parents will be the trigger, like, oh, I see. When, when I'm trying to model uh, speech for, for my child, they're getting all these wild models all, the, all over the place with all these different variations. But when I do it on the AAC, it's the same every single time. And, um, and that consistency can help be a catalyst for them to learn the speech. That has worked for me. Is that, have you seen that as a strategy for you? I actually have said that to parents. I think that a lot of the kids that I work with uh, have a diagnosis of autism. And so I think that what we know about autistic individuals is that sometimes the auditory channel is not as strong as the visual, right? I think that that's pretty common knowledge at this point. And so I think that having some auditory output that is the same every single time does make a huge difference, especially, like I said, with a diagnosis of autism. Um, and so I've said that, and that has been a way to get buy-in um, from parents to say like, oh, you're right. Like it does make sense that, you know, they would need to hear it the same way every time. And it's, it gives hope that like, maybe this could be the tool that helps them learn how, you know, to communicate and use this language, uh, which I think ultimately, like, we want to plant a seed of hope when we're talking about AAC for a family who hasn't necessarily bought in yet, you know, and I think that saying that really resonates with, with people and it makes a lot of sense. And so, yes, I've definitely used that strategy before. Uh, another one that, that has worked well with for me is making the analogy to people's calendars. So I say, all right, if um, your uh, your partner comes to you and says, hey, don't forget, we're going over to so-and-so on Saturdays, you know, in one ear, out the other. But if you say that, and it's also on the calendar, and then you have two modalities, like, hey, I mentioned it, and you can see it, you know? So... Isn't that the same sort of analogy we're making here is that, um, okay, for a word, you're hearing it, 
and you're seeing where it is. So you're giving multiple modalities where in speech, you're often just hearing it, you know, and by providing multiple modalities, students remember it better. People remember it better. Absolutely. I think about the fact that speech is so ephemeral. It's so fleeting. It's like, and if you don't catch it, like we've all been in the situation where we, we hear somebody say something, but we don't catch it, right? Our brain just did not pick up on it. And I feel like, especially with auditory processing challenges, you know, processing challenges in general, I think that what's so nice about AAC is it, it's, it remains constant. You didn't have to catch it the first time because it's still there. And that's what is such a game changer for a lot of the kids that we work with. And some people, I think, will think that's related to disability. And of course, it can be amplified. But really, I find that as a human characteristic, not something related to any sort of uh, ability or disability. It is just part of being human is that um, there's lots of uh, input coming in and um, providing that multiple modalities helps you make sense of that input. I love it. I love it. I'm feeling better about this conversation already. And I mean, I still probably have a million other things to say, but I think that hopefully what we've done in this, this recording is given people some ideas on how to have conversations with families. Because uh, ultimately, I think what happens is clinicians maybe have the inkling like, okay, I'm not seeing as much progress as I want. Maybe AAC would be good. But then two things happen. One, they're like, I know nothing about AAC and I feel overwhelmed. So like, that's not me, right? I'm not the one who like can do AAC. And then I also think sometimes like eat your ego kind of gets, comes in the door and gets in the way feeling like I don't know enough. So I'm just going to keep doing what I know. And I feel like there's nothing more detrimental to our practice as clinicians than having our ego come in the door and like be a block to us recognizing when we don't know something and knowing that we can refer out to people who know better than us, um, I feel like is one of the most important things. And so many times I've met, you know, families and heard stories and I'm just thinking like, ah, oh, that ego, that ego is just getting in the way. And, 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 you know, it's not to say that's never happened to me before. Like we never want to admit that we don't know something. And, but I think ultimately we need to focus on the students that we serve. And if we focus on the students that we serve and we really want, you know, their best, we have their best interests at the forefront of our mind, it's not about us. You know, it's not about us or not knowing or feeling embarrassed or all these things, right? It's about helping families access the services that their children need to succeed and to develop communication and to connect with the world. And so, I don't know, I just think that that is something that's so important and just like we all kind of need a reminder of sometimes. One uh, important aspect there of families is that families are diverse. They're not, they don't all, um, they, they're not all the same. There's different cultural backgrounds. Um, there's different uh, makeups. Uh, there's different dynamics at play. And that sort of leads into our interview. Our interview today is with Tanya Williams-Walker and Beth Poss. And Beth Poss, of course, is one of the authors of the Inclusive 365 book that is um, that is coming out soon. And, uh, and we had this rich conversation about uh, diversity. And so I think that's going to play in exactly to what we were talking about here about families. So without further ado, let's listen to my interview with Beth Poss and Tanya Williams-Walker.
Great news, everybody. We're going to be presenting a pre-conference workshop for Closing the Gap called Designing and Delivering Empowering Experiences to Teach Language Using AAC. This six-hour virtual workshop takes place over two days, October 7th and 8th, from 1 to 4 p.m. Central Time on each day. This interactive workshop explores strategies for teaching students of all ages language by engineering environments so all communicators have opportunities for rich, meaningful practice in the context of everyday routines. Participants will get to explore how to design experiences using interactive technologies, which empower the student and their support network, putting them on the path to achieve their lifelong language goals. During the workshop, we're going to take an in-depth look at building the skills of communication partners through structured training centered on both consulting and coaching. We'll be sharing the latest tools and strategies for establishing a culture of language learning using AAC. Everybody loves engaging tools. You can sign up now by going to bit.ly slash designAAC. That's bit.ly slash designAAC can't wait to see you guys there. Oh, and there's one more thing to mention, Rachel. What's that, Chris? I'm actually doing two pre-conferences on those days. I'll be presenting with the other authors of the new Inclusive Learning 365 book as well. The title of that pre-conference is Inclusive Learning 365, Breaking Down Barriers and Creating a Culture of Inclusivity by Design. That pre-conference is also on October 7th and October 8th, 2021, but it will be at 9 to 12 Central Time on those days. If you'd like to learn more about how to redesign educational experiences through an inclusive lens, then you can register for that pre-conference by going to bit.ly slash inclusivectg. That's bit.ly slash inclusivectg. Come spend the whole day with me. See you there. Welcome to the Talking With Tech podcast. My name is Chris Bouguet, and today I'm joined with two special guests. Uh, these people are people that live up in Montgomery County, Maryland. Is that right? Just north of where I actually reside. And I'm here with Tanya Williams-Walker and Beth Poss. How you doing, Tanya? How you doing, Beth? Hello, hello. Great to see you. It's great to be here, Chris. How are you doing? Good, really good, really good. So, so for people that don't know you, let's um, let's get people to know you. So, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Tanya, you want to go first? Absolutely. So, I'm I'm many things. <laughs> Actually, I currently am what's called an instructional specialist for a preschool education program. It's a special education preschool program, but I'm also a speech language pathologist. I think I'll I'll always be that at heart. Um, I still you know maintain a practice, and I'm very much in the field. But I get to play with special educators a lot which is a lot of fun. Um, I'm also a, an adjunct professor at the University of Maryland College Park, and I, I teach their AAC class. <laughs> so um, again, I'm, I'm, my, hat, my hand is in AAC in, in lots of different ways, whether it's you know, with my own practice or, or working with graduate students. And Beth? Yeah, and um, I'm just gonna echo um, Tanya in saying, yes, I'm a speech language pathologist and that's sort of the backbone to, to everything else. Um, but I, um, I am a retired Montgomery County Public Schools 
uh, educator and I've done a little bit of everything from being an SLP, um, school-based SLP to spending um, about 10 years on our district's um, assistive technology team. And that's how I first got to know Tanya was we worked together on the AT team with um, the Interact team with Montgomery County. Um, and then I actually was um, uh, administrator in our preschool education program um, at the same time that Tanya was a parent educator in the, in the PEP program. So our, our paths got to cross a lot in MCPS. Um, I went on and I was an assistant principal for three years and, and then I retired. And now I just get to have an absolute blast um, as the director of educational programs with Lesson Pecs. Um, where I feel like I've gotten to pick back up my SLP after being an assistant principal for three years. I kind of like wasn't in the SLP world so much. Um, and now I feel like I get to like immerse myself in that a lot, a lot more and in different ways, like impacting that larger, that larger group, that larger audience. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, also in full disclosure here, Tanya, you and I have never met, but Beth and I, right, Tanya, we haven't ever met. We in have the, met. We back have. in the one of the MATN things, where have we met? Many of those back when you were running marathons or half marathons. <laughs> oh my gosh, I remember. <laughs> I'm that Tanya. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that was uh, many years ago and um, many pounds ago. <laughs> <laughs> when I was running half marathons. Yes, I remember those conversations now. Okay, I'm putting the pieces together. We have met. Yeah. I've so never run a marathon nor a <laughs> half marathon. I have not even ever run a 5K. So we'll just put that out there. Well, oh, that's a goal then for 2021. Totally. So, Tanya, are you still running? No, not as much. <laughs> I walk a lot, though. I do. Yeah, I do a lot of walking and I'll run for like, see, I have this, my little medal here. This is, um, we do some work with Smiles for Speech, which is an organization that puts out a, a 5K every year. And we we try and do like um, 5Ks that are, that are sponsoring some sort of, um, you know, uh, initiative that we want to get behind. So cool. Yeah. So we have met. Okay. So full disclosure, we have met at one of the Maryland Assistive Technology Network or, or a couple of the Maryland Assistive Technology Network um, uh, sessions, conferences. And then Beth and I go way, way back. We've been longtime presenters um, and friends for many, many years. And Beth is one of the authors of the new book. So Beth, you want to tell people about the new book? They probably heard it before, but maybe this is the first time they're listening to the podcast. Yeah, sure. So yeah, Chris and I, along with um, Mike Murata and Karen. Janowski um, have authored um, Inclusive 365 EdTech Strategies for Every Day of the Year, which we are super excited about. And it is the idea of getting uh, information about inclusive strategies um, in a bite-sized once a day type of a fashion. So there's one strategy for every day of the year, if that's the way you know that you want to um, you know, peruse this book. So that will be out hopefully um, the end of next month or the beginning of June, sometime in there. Yep. So. And you can check it out at inclusive365.com. Now, now that the commercial's over, uh, Tanya, um, let me ask, you had mentioned that you are teaching the AAC course there and you're and it sounds like you're helping other educators maybe uh, implement AAC in the classroom is that accurate can you tell us a little bit about um, your background with AAC how you got involved with it and then kind of what you do now absolutely but before I do I just want to say that I've known Beth since 1998 oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> so you've known long, me longer long than Chris has. Yeah, I, think. I just had to win that. I just yeah, you know. did. You won. <laughs> it's, a, it's a marathoner in me that that needs one. Um, so you know, I it's interesting. Back when I was in graduate school, I think I only heard the word augmentative one time, and it wasn't even from a professor. It was from a, a fellow student who had heard about it when she was an undergrad. And so I, I just happened upon the most incredible CF year, my clinical fellowship year, down at the Civitan International Research Center at uh, UAB, the University of Alabama at Birmingham, their Sparks Clinics. They had um, an AAC clinic. And so just as a part of my CFY, I was immersed uh, in AAC. I remember meeting Pam Elder for the first time. Oh my goodness, how incredible that was uh, during that time. And so, you know, I was able to to join some committees, do some traveling around the state of Alabama, just spreading the, the word about AAC all around. And so I happened upon a, a job back in Maryland at, um, you know, MCPS, and um, there happened to be an opening in a class where students, they were, they were using devices. And that just sort of, sort of started. I already knew how to program things. I understood the philosophy, philosophies behind, you know, teaching students how to use the devices. And so, uh, again, meeting Beth has been pivotal in this entire journey. Um, she is, you know, one of the, the people that's really responsible for me even being, you know, able to teach the class. So I'll always be appreciative of that. And so now I'm at, I'm at Maryland teaching the graduate class and it, it used to be a, uh, an elective and somehow it now is a line item. You, you have to take this class. I know I'm, it's, it's an exciting feeling for it to not be an elective at this point and to be something that every SLP to be will have to, to take as they, they exit. So um, we really focus on getting a good handle on the the basics, you know, not just learning the tools. I mean, we can all learn how to program something, right? But it's how you do you teach someone to be the best communicator that they can be? How do you um, respect everyone as, as having communication be a fundamental and basic right, right? So we kind of start from there and then we just build, you know, this, you know, we can teach you to use a tool, but let's work on those strategies that's going to really help folks, um, you know, be able to live their best lives and communicate, you know, what they want, when they want, and who they want to communicate with. Like that's really how we set up our, our vision for our class and, and we go from there. I would say a constant theme in this podcast is that the um, the pre-service education is something that we need to focus on maybe internationally. Um, and so to hear that that that, that university has made the, the leap from optional to mandatory, I think is a step in the right direction and maybe a place more more universities can can go. So Beth, what about your um, your background? How what's your what's your um, your experience with AAC? Yeah, I stumbled, I guess, into AAC when I was first starting grad school um, many, 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 many moons ago. Um, I I um, had a part time job when I was starting out um, in grad school, working in a school with learners that needed augmentative communication, um, and um, I just so I had that opportunity, and and it really struck my my interest. And when I started taking you know my my grad school courses, um, there wasn't there was no there was not even an optional AAC course. There was a little bit of AAC that was part of the child language course, right? Um, there wasn't, and it was just so I sought it out, like in my um, 
in my clinical practicum work, um, I sought out placements that gave me the opportunity um, to work um, with students with complex communication needs. And this was the very beginning of um, electronic communication aids in a lot of ways. Um, I remember learning how to program a unicorn board. Um, and Tanya, I don't know if you were around when um, Marion Greenblatt was around at, at, but so is that, the, remember the awards? There's, so there's an award for her, right? Um, and um, in, in any case, so uh, I, I, I really, you know, got in at that level. Well, you know, the wolf talker and, um, you know, learning how to program all of those and um, uh, the deck, you know, like the first things that were coming out from PRC. Um, and it just was really of interest to me. And so I, I started off um, with preschoolers, infants and toddlers and preschoolers primarily that um, had um, complex um, and significant disabilities and just always loved it. And then, you know, when I had the opportunity to join our um, district's um, augmentative communication and accessibility team, I just, I went for it. And that was, you know, I learned so much um, with that. And, and it's always been part of my passion. I feel like I've gone in different directions with the whole um, assistive technology and becoming uh, really well-rounded in that area, but um, still that, that importance of I'll just echo what Tanya said of being able to communicate that everyone has, it is a human right to be able to communicate what you want to say, when you want to say it and to who you want to say it. Um, so I'm echoing just what you said, Tanya, that is, it's a human right and it's of critical importance, you know, to me and my outlook um, as a professional and as a person. Something you both touched on there for a second was the idea that uh, back in the day, when Beth, like you, it, it came to mind when you were talking about unicorn and wolf and the old devices. And Tanya, you mentioned how, like back in the day, we might um, spend a little bit more time focusing on the programming or the 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 the. Um, I don't want to say operational, but the, the the pushing of the buttons and the click, flicking of the switches. And then Tanya, you had mentioned how, but now what you really focus is on, it's like, well, we can watch YouTube videos to figure that out. Let's focus on the strategies and what you actually do with it and maybe some underlying considerations. And that's actually one of the, one of those considerations I think is what we're really here to talk about today, which is the equity um, considerations when you're thinking about AAC. And so when we talk about equity, I think a good thing to start right there is that that term itself can mean so many different things to so many different people. And I, I actually, I find that's a good strategy for any conversation on any topic of anything. So many topics today seem to have mean different things to different people, but this one in particular. So I thought we might take a second here to define that. So in relation to speech language pathology, in relation to AAC, in relation to education in general and what that means for families and therapists, what does equity mean to you? How can we define it here for people listening? Who wants to go first? Tanya. Beth so, is pointing to Tanya. <laughs> so when I when I think about equity globally, it's it's equal opportunity uh, for success. And I know that success for people, it's individual, right? So that, you know, when we think about those considerations in AAC, that means that we have to get to know the person that we are supporting on that individual level. And it's it's making sure that the people have access to the resources that they need or that they require. It's the removal of any barriers 
to that access, for example. Um, you know, it's, again, making sure that the opportunities are there, that we lessen the likelihood to favor, you know, either it could be one type of system or over another um, because of our own preference. It could be, you know, favoring one type of strategy over another too, because again, of preference or just what we're used to. I know that we often do things um, subconsciously sometimes, you know, so when you have an equity mindset in this work, you're really trying to um, confront your own biases or, or things that might impact how you um, view and, and work with individuals who require AAC. And again, just making sure that, that you're a part of the solution of, of removing those barriers to give equal access. Yeah, and, and I'll just sort of, just to kind of go along with that, with that idea of barriers that I think there's the, you know, it's important to keep in mind when we talk about equity that equity and equality aren't the same things, right? Like in order to provide equity, you may need to give somebody else more in order for them to overcome those barriers. And I had just, so I've been reading a book, um, Anti-Racism and Universal Design for Learning by um, Andrew Tesh of Fritz Gerald. And when I was thinking about, you know, our talk today, I, I, I pulled up something that had really struck um, a chord with me. And she talks about um, codes of honor around recognizing power structure in terms of anti-racist uh, teaching and, and universal design for learning. And that's that breaking down of, of barriers. Um, and I think when we talk about equity, a lot of it does come from like recognizing the power structure, the power structure that like we have as a speech language pathologist to um, make choices about the opportunities for communication that we're giving to individuals. Um, and, and she talks about empowering each member of the learning community um, in structures and supports and supports and choices available. Um, you know, how are we involving, how are we giving up our power as the adults, as the speech language pathologist, as the experts? Um, how, how are we, how can we give up power um, to empower the students um, and the individuals that um, we are helping build um, communicative competence to. Like, we can't always be that one in control, right? Um, I, I just think that's such an important, like, shift. I know it's a shift I have to think about making um, and, and making more of and how, you know, to give, if we want them to be able to say what they want, to who they want, when they want, we've got to give up some power um, in order in order to do that. Um, and so like, you know, just what she says about this, the what Fitzgerald says about the codes of honor and just one more thing that she, you know, talks about, um, create opportunities for members of the learning community to make powerful decisions that govern their best possible outcomes, like listening, um, to all the different ways that um, AAC users are are communicating with us about about their systems, about um, what's important to them, instead of um, imposing what we think is important on them. 
Tanya, I saw you write something down. Well, you had some, <laughs> I saw the spark it, fly. <laughs> absolutely. You know, I, what I've started to incorporate, not just in my work in the AC, but just as my, my role as an instructional specialist as well, um, is to ask people, you know, what is it that you need? What do you need uh, to order to, in order to feel successful? And then I ask, how can I help? And if I do that, it sort of removes what my desires might be for someone. And it really gives me an entry point. Um, it could be at a moment, you know, I have ideas of where I think a person should go in the work, um, but I can't force that on anyone, right? I have to, to meet them where they are. So I think by asking those questions, you know, I'm able to, to meet people where they are. And then, you know, if I, can coach perhaps to look at a different perspective, sure, but it really isn't about about me. And I've really had to learn how to let that how to let that go. Make Tanya, it about the AAC user. You know, Tanya, I've gone on that same journey. I'm still on it because as an assist as a, a speech language pathologist turned assistive technology, now thinking myself as like a, a again instructional facilitator. Um, I was never trained to kind of give up that control. I was always the one, I was trained how to give direct therapy. Do you know? I was trained to fix the problem. Uh, and so it has been removing myself from that has been, you know, something that has taken some time and some conscious effort. It, have you both experienced the same um, journey or similar? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm just thinking to like a situation recently. So I was mentoring, um, a young SLP, a, 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 a CFY, um, and she was really having challenges with um, some young, um, or young like birth to three year old clients that she was working with. Um, and you know, she's like, "How do I get them to have joint attention? Like, I can't get them to pay attention to anything." And um, I bring all the. I feel like I'm like constantly bringing out a new toy and trying to get them to attend. And I said, "Okay." instead of asking them to join in with what you are doing, you know, and we went through like, well, what are your goals? You know, all of that. I said, consider instead joining in on what they're doing, right? Um, so, and she's like, well, what if they're just running around? I said, then run around with them. Well, what if they're spinning and flapping and, and, and you know, I said, well, do the same thing, do it in a safe manner and, narrate a little bit of what you're doing right like or talk about it like oh yeah this is fun or i'm getting dizzy or whatever it is but instead of asking them to join you join them right like that's how you're going to get joint attention they don't care what you're doing they care what they're doing mm -hmm. so it's kind of that same way like from you know um a young child or, you know, whether whoever you're working with, right, you've got to, exactly what you're saying, you got to join in what with what they care about, not what you necessarily care about at that moment. Tanya, did you have thoughts? I always have thoughts. <laughs> um, I don't know that I can add anything more, but just to say that in order to really talk about equity, I think whether it's in AAC or, or you know, any, any developmental area, we do have to think about equity on a larger scale. Think about equity in education. We have to talk about how we are preparing our students for a career in college readiness, for example. Um, I know some people might not even think that an AAC user could go to college, for example. So there are all these mindset shifts that we that we have to we have to do. Um, and of course, we have to think about linguistic and cultural 
you know, diversity and this conversation of equity too. So I think when you are at a place where you, you're really just meeting the person where they are and you're asking them about what they need, you show an interest, a true, genuine interest in their family structure, for example, their culture, all these things, you, you learn what it is that they, what they desire, need, and it helps you then uh, craft your work around to support them. Mm-hmm. I find a strategy that works well for me is to lead with asking more questions than coming in with telling people what to do or giving a suggestion. Is that something you've both discovered as well? You're both nodding. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, no. And, And it's something like that, something you have to learn how to do is to like ask the questions like what you said, you know, like, what do you need right now? Or what do you think about that? Like, what are your thoughts on this? What did you, a lot of times I, I would go in as a, as a, as a supervisor level, right. Talking in with, with, with staff, you know, asking, well, what do you think went well in that session or, and, and what would you um, do differently next time? Like, instead of saying what didn't go well, right. Like, what would you do? If you got a do over, what would you do differently? And then respecting what they said, like if they said, oh, I wouldn't do anything differently, you know, then you've got to find another way to get to that. Or maybe they thought what went really well was not what you were thinking of, but then acknowledging like, okay, yeah, yeah, I can see where you're saying that, right? Um, so yeah, asking those questions, because you, it's important, you might get answers you weren't expecting, and that's really important. Beth and I have traveled in the same circle. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of what we've learned in Hannon, for example, because um, I have an infant and toddler background. Faith, have, I mean, um, Faith, listen to me. We have so many people in common that we work with. Faith yeah. is someone that we know in the work as well. Um, but Beth was like a coordinator for, for infants and toddlers. And you, you learn about coaching because it's a coaching model here. And you learn about just what you mentioned about asking more questions um, than giving more answers. You know, I think, I don't know if you had the Sheldon and Rush training, Beth, uh, or if you did yeah. the Robin McWilliam, yeah, RBI. I mean, so all of this kind of training that we've had prepares you to, to know how to, to coach uh, and help people arrive at where they want to be. You know, we, we try not to ask yes, no questions. We ask questions that allow them to expand and elaborate. We ask questions to to get a deeper understanding of of what their their needs are. So I, you know, it took me a while to figure out how all these different trainings kind of fit together and how everything integrates, but they do. You know, it reminds me of folks who say AAC is a separate thing, but it's not. That's one of the things I, I loved about it. Even during my CF, I had a main clinic that was an AAC clinic, but every clinic that I participated in, someone needed to use AAC. And so I think, um, you know, it's, it's just nice to see the connections mm-hmm. in the coaching work and, and how it has a place for um, supporting equity. All right, let me ask you the big, a big question here. So right now, when we're recording this podcast, it's 2021. Um, something I think about, Um, And it came to mind while you were talking about like um, asking somebody to think about um, their potential. So let me ask you this kind of big question. It's not 2021 anymore. It's 2031. We've, we've jumped in our time machine. We fast forwarded 10 years. What do we think, what do we think equity looks like again, in relation to educational practices, helping people achieve what they'd like to achieve when it comes to AAC. Um, and just in general, what do we think the future of equity looks like? What I always say, we want to design with the end in mind. So if 10 years <laughs> isn't the end, but 10 years is like a big chunk of time away, 
What, what does it look like? Who wants to go first? Um, I mean, I can go first this time. Um, okay. You know, and this was something I was thinking about too when you were talking about, well, what does equity mean to you in relation to speech language pathology and AAC in general? Well, I think one big thing is I hope in 10 years that we see a lot more speech language pathologists, special educators, all of that of color, right? Like we right now are in a situation where the adults um, that are addressing these needs don't necessarily look like the students and the clients that they're serving. And I think that's a really important part of those building those relationships and developing equity. And the barriers that we were talking about before, like there's barriers in equity, those barriers are not just to the students that we work with, but they're also to the individuals in the field, right? There are not enough SLP, like 8% is, it, I think there's 8% of the SLPs in as ASHA members, right, are, are people of color. Um, and so then, you know, those that are working in speech language, I mean, in AAC, it's even a smaller number, right? Um, and that influences so many other things. Like I think as we are seeing more speech language pathologists of color, we are seeing more awareness of the need for um, diversity in the systems and the symbols that we're using, right? Like the images that are on communication systems and the voices that are out there. Um, so I, you know, one of my big wants in 2031 is that, it, that the field will be more balanced than it is right now. Tanya, what are your thoughts? So I think back to when the Civil Rights Act was passed, the last, the final vote, I think it was 1964 or so, which when you think about it really isn't a long time ago. Um, and if you travel in that mindset to where we are now, you've seen significant growth. And then you've seen moments of, wait a minute, what year is this? Is this really happening now? And so when I look at 2031, that's, that's just 10 years from now. It's really not a long time mm -hmm. if you look at it in that, in that way. So um, I agree with Beth. I think just having better representation, because if we look at the caseloads that we serve, definitely it, it is mostly black and brown children, depending on the area where you are, of course, like in the area where we live, um, is definitely black and brown children who are on caseloads the most. And our bilingual and multilingual population, they tend to be on caseloads as well. So I would just add, in addition to increasing representation, I'd love for us to take a, a better look or to be better at respecting that sometimes it's just a language difference. Sometimes it's a part of, you know, a second language or third language acquisition. Maybe it's a cultural difference and it's not a disorder because someone may have an accent or, you know, they say something a little bit differently. Um, I, I just, I, I would like to see more balance in the, the populations that, that we serve. Mm -hmm. um, something that I learned from Charlie Danger. Charlie Danger is a uh, occupational therapist, but also works in AAC out in the UK. And he had a uh, we interviewed him for the podcast a couple of years ago, um, and he had done some work. Um, actually, Beth, did you were you with him when you went when he went to yeah, Qatar? Yeah, so yeah. I met him out in Qatar. Yep. 
Um, but he was talking about the the cultural diversity there, and and again about talking about imposing your bias, like imposing this bias of um, of independence. You know, that's a very American way of looking at things. Is we want you to be independent, where other cultures might say we want you to be part of the collective, we want you to be part of the the family model. Um, uh, and I wonder if that's not a part of it too. Is looking at the uh, what the family. Uh, wants, needs, and cultural norms are for that population. What are your thoughts? Yeah, we have to stop working on like food as the reason, like getting kids <laughs> like, oh, well, withhold food. Some families, that is like an anathema to them because they're not a good parent if they're withholding food. Find something else, right? Like ask that family what's important, you know, uh, to get that child communicating. So yeah, definitely. Um, having that culturally responsive understanding of of how to go about what you're doing. And there might be a, a, a child or person who were eating is difficult. You know, it forces us to think about other ways to to communicate with them, to support, you know, or other things to communicate about. I know food is such an important part of, you know, um, our culture here. But you're you're right. Like for some, it may be not as um, not as a big thing, or it might be a medical reason why it's, it can't be. So let's talk about some actionable steps to get there. So I think a kind of a uh, one, an easy one that people talk about that I've heard a lot is just make sure symbols on the AAC are representative. I mean, that seems like that's like, like that's doable, right? <laughs> like, like, why isn't that already a thing? Um, and it's becoming more a thing every time we talk about it. Would you agree? I would agree. And it's an easy one. You're right. But I think even before that step, because, you know, again, I'm, I'm noticing you're like, that's an easy one. People should be able to think of that one. Yeah. But they often don't just consider um, they don't consider that in other people. They don't consider you know, any cultural linguistic difference, for example. And it's not that they're they're trying to not think about it or to do it on purpose. I just think an awareness piece needs to be increased so that first of all, you just consider that maybe this person might want uh, an emoji to match their their skin tone, for example. You know, maybe you will consider that this particular regional dialect should be represented in a bank of, of voice choices. But first you have to just be aware that you even need to consider it. <laughs> and, and beyond just the race piece, like I, you know, I was looking through, uh, so, you know, nothing hidden here, right? I work for Lesson Picks and it's a company that makes um, visual supports and, and um, I was looking through our symbols and I wrote to the our graphics person and said, hey, we need a symbol, a singular they. We need a non-binary singular they. Mm -hmm. And and she was like, oh, you're right, we do, right? Like it was, it just, because that wasn't a part of her daily experience, it wasn't something, you know, and, and we've gone to great lengths to like have different body types and show different disabilities and to have different skin tone available and hair and all of those different things. And I was like, ah, oh, we, we got, can't remember, you know, we can't forget that. I mean, you know, like it's not just, we, so that it's not simply the race or multilingual, but we also need to be thinking of equity in terms of, of gender identification, of, of, of representing, you know, a body positivity of, of ableism, all of those kinds of, you know, areas that we all need a lot of work on. I mean, mm -hmm. I know I, I'm always working on it, right? And as, so you so you don't have to say it, Beth, I'll say it. Um, 
I believe less than picks. I also know that there's people that work in the field in the industry that listen to the podcast. And one step that less than picks has had for a long time has, I mean, maybe not even as an equitable goal, but just as a, hey, we want to get better as a company is an ability to suggest um what what you need like there's a place where you can put in suggestions right am i thinking yeah, you just that right? click right there suggest a picture and so yep. if the small company doesn't think of the what should be there you could you could you could hey could you could you add these uh and that could be a step that that, that people take what are some other do you think some actionable steps um let's say a speech language pathologist or a teacher could take when it comes to aac I think adding to making sure that representation is there because it certainly matters. It reminds me too, Beth, remember I sent you a picture of a SLP, a black woman who was so excited that the picture actually looked like her. Yes. Oh my gosh, with the headband, almost the same color shirt. Um, <laughs> she was so, so excited about that. The less um, big SLP picture. Like <laughs> yeah. There was an option for that. Um, I, I think really making families and the, the potential or the, the known AAC user part of the process, like really honestly um, communicating with them about, uh, and, and like from the beginning, from the intake to the assessment, to the trial that you do, and then to your evaluation of whether or not this, this device is going to work or not, or the system's going to work, they need to really be part of that every step of the way. Um, and I, I, I know that that can be a challenge sometimes, because we do kind of, in our minds, we, we know what the data supports, we have evidence-based info behind us, backing us, we know what's developmentally appropriate, but we, we can't, we have to balance that with what is truly um, what the family and the AACC user, what they really want for them for themselves. So they have, I think, making sure that that we create a space for them to feel that um, their honor, their their wishes can be honored, their desires. Um, where again, it can be a, a place for them to know that we are we are there to work with them. Um, we're there for them as well, but that we don't we're not the ones that are, are in control of of everything. Yeah, it's like giving it's giving up that power. It's that it's we've got to be able to relinquish that power. And, and and we've talked about it before in terms of like, you know, instead of being the sage on the stage, being the guide on the side too. like there's all different ways of looking at how we can relinquish power. I don't know if any of you, if either of you guys follow or any of your listeners out there follow. I, I know her first name is Lydia and I cannot think of her last name, but I think her her uh, website is is click speak connect um, on Instagram and Facebook. That's exactly what she's been talking about. So she's an AAC user and her posts lately have all been about the things that have been, that were imposed on her and about the need to listen to AAC users when making decisions about um, their systems and the vocabulary and when to use it and all of that. And yeah, that's so critical. Beth, I know Lydia, Lydia Dolly. Um, has been on the podcast. She's been. Yes, she, that's uh, it. I couldn't think of the last name. <laughs> um, she does the uh, the the Nad Pen and had a whole Patreon, and we supported it and um, and uh, tried to, and, and I think was successful. Kickstarter. Yeah, not yeah. Patreon, I, Kickstarter, I, I, Kickstarter. I contributed to her Kickstarter too. I can't wait to you know get it at some point. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. So uh, so those are some great strategies. What other strategies do you think people can take? Again, actionable steps, stuff that you can actually do. I know something that we've talked about on the podcast was actually setting some sort of of goal. I mean, we created a goal for ourselves and not just the idea, like um, something that was important to Rachel and I was not just to be like, well, we'll get better, you know, like this kind of nebulous 
non-committal get better you know um so we set an actual goal like we're gonna try and have um you know 12 episodes uh in the podcast about equity or where we're talking about something related to that um to keep it a focus so that it so that 10 15 like you said it, it seems like a drop in the bucket really when you put it from that perspective tanya only 10 years um but that we're constantly marching in the right direction. So what are some other um, steps do you, that, that you see might be helpful? I think it's helpful to learn more about the, the people that you're supporting. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm playing with plant-based diets right now, you know, and I just didn't go into it saying, okay, I'm not eating any meat, any, anything. No, I, I got some books. I read some things. I, you know, watched some, some YouTubers and listened to some podcasts. You know, I educated myself about this journey that I'm, I'm now on. And so I think it's important to do the same when we're working with clients who might be from diverse backgrounds. Maybe they have other things that are just, we're not familiar with. And I think sometimes our biases creep in just because we don't, we don't know any better. We haven't gained our true experience with um, someone or some belief. And so I, I think that's, that's a, a good step to take as well, just educating yourself. Tanya, I, I have to second that, maybe shout it from the rooftops. Beth and I have had this conversation in the past, and actually I've, I've like mentioned it during some presentations we've been doing uh, years ago. Um, I went through this journey where, you know, I'm a, a heterosexual uh, male um, in a speech language pathology world, right? And so I, to me, um, many years ago, when I started seeing like um, how women were treated out in the workforce, well, when I was looking at a two inch view, people can't see it, but I'm, I'm showing that my, my hand is two inches from my nose. The world looked like great to me. Like, I mean, women are the predominant force in the workforce. Do you know what I mean? It has to break out of that bubble to say, hmm, there's, there's something going on beyond just this two inch view. I had to pull the, the, the camera back, pull my hand back to see that. And I find that um, the way to do that is to break out of your bubble and start learning from other resources. Um, Twitter was great for me. Podcasting was great for me. Reading books sounds like a great strategy. So I cannot, and that that really helped me kind of broaden my view of how things were in the world. And that same view, I would say, is happening with me for equity. You know, my uh, the director of special education was a black woman. Um, our uh, assistant superintendent, black woman. So again, from a, a Many of the supervisors I work with, black women. So when I'm again looking at it from a two-inch view, things look great. Do you know what I mean? Like we're very equitable. You know, or we've moved in in a um, from from where we would be before. But if it's breaking away from that and learning more, that you really see there's a wider scope to the world. I, yeah, I, and I'm going to give a little. This is like a little different kind of a maybe. Um, a, a different approach to something to to do that you that's actionable that you can do um and look at the stuff that you use like look at the materials that you are using look at the games that you are playing look at the books that you are reading and take a really critical eye to them um are the are the you know are all of the games that you're playing do they show white characters in it right like is it a, is it a very you know is it a very white centered um look at the books that you're reading and you might say oh no 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 the books that i'm reading you know we read we read the mitten and we read 
um, I'm looking at my own bookshelf right now, right? Like, and we read um, Chicka Chicka Boom Boom. And, you know, well, there's a, there's a, a blog post that I read that talks about a way to look at, so sort your books, sort your books where it's predominantly white centered um, characters in it, predominantly animal centered characters in it, and then look at books where it is centering um, characters of color. So then like take the animals out, like there's nothing wrong with the animals, but you're not actually showing diversity when it's all animals, right? Um, and and then and then look at okay, so what can I add to my collection? There's there's nothing wrong with you know. Again, I'm looking at my own bookshelf. There's nothing wrong necessarily, inherently wrong with where the wild things are. But what can I add to my bookshelf um, that is going to get beyond the mitten and where the wild things are, right? So that the kids that I'm working with are seeing themselves in the materials um, that they are using. Um, you know, and again, not just your books, but all the other things that you're doing. Does your, you know, does your um, Fisher Price, Price, you know, dollhouse, like, or, you know, what is that? Who are the characters in that? Like, where are you, you know, all of those things that you can do. So critically look at the resources, the materials that you're looking and who are they centering um, in those materials and what can you do to, um, to decenter whiteness, right? Decenter whiteness, decenter ability, non-disabled, right? Neurotypical, decenter Christianity, like all of those different things. How can we decenter these um, uh, these institutions that are basically um, in power, right? Mm-hmm. That's part of the considerations I was saying before. We need to we need to just consider all of this. I don't know if it's a checklist that we need to have nearby before we start to plan anything or, you know, just say, okay, is this um, representative of, of, you know, this particular culture? Or, I, I, you know, I, I, I really appreciate what you're, you're saying about making sure your materials are not just about animals. Um, it's, it's one thing to have um, people from Africa represented in a book versus animals <laughs> that you might see from Africa. You know, I used to make my own books. I remember there was a student, his name was Julio. So I had Julio the Scarecrow. That was a book I wrote for him back when I was on the team with you. Um, Sonny was from um, Vietnam. So there was Sonny's Pumpkin because I just, at the time there was nothing that really spoke to um, what my students needed given, you know, how diverse it is too in our in our yeah. county. So yeah, I, I echo what you're, you're saying. Definitely need to make sure our, our materials are representative. Tanya, I will say uh, it has helped us to actually actually have a checklist, like actually make it visual in a way to make it not just one person, but to make it um, something that if I left, well, that checklist persists. So now the next person that's going to be considering materials can look at that and go, oh, yeah, that's got to be something I look at when I'm considering what we're putting in place, you know. Um, so I think that's a that's a that's a, that's a good suggestion. And, and I'm just going to add one thing, like a lot of it we're saying, like, so that it reflects the students that you are working with or the individuals you're working with. But we need to make sure that our materials are not only um, mirrors, but that they're also windows so that you can't say, well, all the kids in my school are white. So I don't need to worry about looking at that. Yes, you do. It needs to be a window onto others. And 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 you can't kind of reverse that and say, well, you know, like, believe me, every black kid out there has read books 
that centered whiteness, right? It's not from that perspective. Oh, I need to make sure like that my black kids are seeing white people too. Believe me, they are, right? It's the other. So especially, right? It's not just, it, it's not just the kids looking like the kids that you're working with, but it needs to be mirrors and windows. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So let's add some final thoughts here. One of the questions that I like to ask um, towards the end of the podcast is to think about um, something that is like you're questing after recently. So it doesn't have to be necessarily in terms of of equity, but just something in the in the field of AEC that's kind of got you stoked, pumped, curious, um, something you want to learn more about, uh, something that's kind of just driving your own, uh, your, your own learning. I want to learn more about that. What, what, are, what's, what's exciting you lately? It's this work in equity for me. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm getting ready to teach my next class. It's a, a online hybrid class in the summertime and it's intense. It's three weeks. So we do a whole lot in three weeks, but I, I know that I need to spend more time on, on this conversation. So this is what I've been, I've been doing. And uh, as part of that, I've been drawn to ASHA's cultural competence checklist. If you've ever had a chance to take a look at, th at it, there are a couple of them actually, maybe three, uh, one on service delivery, there's a personal reflection one, and then there's um, policies and procedures. And what I like is one of the ratings for one of the checklists is, um, is something I always do, something that I sometimes do and something that I rarely do as we're looking at our service delivery and our personal reflections. And so I'm really excited to um, delve more into the, the content of the checklists. And I would like to have more things that I always do. Um, I will say I sometimes do a lot of things, but I, I always want to do some of these things more. Awesome. Any final thoughts? All right. Well, then I want to thank you both, Beth and Tanya, for coming on the podcast and uh, sharing with us your experiences and giving us some real practical strategies that people can put in place. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for having us.